The scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning, this fine, hot summer day, hot for Seattle. Um, you know where it's really hot right now? Florida. And John Pullman was driving home one Florida evening. He, was a, he lived in the state of Florida. He was driving home one night intoxicated. And he saw ahead of him in the road a sobriety checkpoint on the, on the road ahead of him. And he looked over at his friend, Finley in the passenger seat, and he got an idea. Finley was his pet iguana. And so a little bit after that, he went through the, the car. His car rolled through the sobriety checkpoint, but John wasn't seen. You could see Finley with his two front legs gripping the steering wheel of the car, driving the car through the sobriety checkpoint, when the police officers saw this, they thought, something's not quite right. Sure enough, they, had, they waved the car over to the side, and they found that there was John scrunched down in the driver's seat, holding his pet iguana up to drive the car, thinking he would make it through the sobriety checkpoint. He didn't want to get caught, right? He didn't want to get caught. How many people, like I ask the kids, don't want to get caught, right? 
whenever we're doing something wrong, whenever we've sinned, whenever we've done something we know is, our conscience teaches us, our hearts tell us, oh, that's not good. We don't want to get caught, so we'll do anything in our intoxication to try and cover it up, right? That's exactly what John was trying to do. He was trying to use Finley to cover up his sin. So we think about this psalm today that we just heard Rick just read for us. This Psalm 51 was, is attributed to King David. And it's one of the psalms that actually specifically says the reason for this psalm. Not every psalm has this in the introduction. But the reason for this psalm is because David, if you want to turn there to Psalm 51 and you look at the introduction to that psalm there, you can look at it on your on your app, you can look at it on your phone, you can actually pick up a hardcover Bible in front of you and open that up if you want. But if you look at that, it introduces, says, this is the time when Nathan confronted David about Bathsheba. Now, if you don't remember that story, let me just recap it for you. David sends his army under the general Joab to fight the Ammonites, but David, the king, stays back in Jerusalem and while he's there, he notices uh, Bathsheba, and he calls her, and he, has an he calls her to the palace, and they have an affair, and then she sends word later that she has become pregnant through the affair, and so what happens next is David then calls for her husband from the battle and says, Uriah, come home. I want to get a report from you, and so he's already beginning to manipulate and use his power to manipulate and deceive, just as he did with Bathsheba. He used his power to bring her to the palace. And so she comes, and then he tries to have Uriah cover up. He uses, tries to use Uriah to cover up his sin, just like John used Finley. And so he tries to get it cover up, but that doesn't work out. Uriah doesn't cooperate. Uriah doesn't go home. And so Uriah stays at the gate. And then so the king, David, says, let's do this. Let's put Uriah on the front lines of the battle and then have the troops step back and leave him vulnerable in the battle. And sure enough, that happens. Joab issues the order, the general, and Uriah is killed. David takes Bathsheba into the palace, makes her his wife. She conceives and gives birth. And then along comes Nathan. Nathan, the prophet. How many people here like prophets? I don't like prophets. They just say it like it is. So Nathan confronts David about his sin and shows him and reveals to him how much sinning he really has done. It's not just about the affair. It's about the manipulation, the abuse of power. It's about the death of Uriah, the killing of Uriah. There's a whole myriad of sins that occur to cover up the one sin. There's a whole lot of things that are going on to cover it up. But it's interesting how David responds to Nathan. When Nathan confronts him, David at the end of it says this, I have sinned against the Lord. Now when you read that, and if you know the story, you're, you're probably, there's a part of you that's going, well, what about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? What about them? In fact, if you listen to the psalm closely this morning, Psalm 51, it says it again in the psalm. It says, I've sinned against God and God alone. And you look at that, you have to remember that the psalms are poetic. It's the, it's the sense of 
feeling overwhelmed by ultimately, not only have I sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba, but I have sinned against God. Because also what happens in us is that when we sin, we don't always see that there's a connection between our sin against other people and God and vice versa. So really, when we are, we, we know this, the great commandment, right? Love God, love others, right? Love God, love your neighbor, the greatest commandment right? We know that there's this relationship to God, that we love God, but we also know there's a connection between how we love other people. It's the same with our sin. Our sin, our faults, our failures are also connected. So when we do harm to someone else around us, we're also harming our relationship, not only our relationship to them, but our relationship to God. And when we, and our relationship to God affects also how we treat other people. There's a connection here that's in the Old Testament, it's in Jesus in the New Testament, you can't separate these out. We, don't, we can't pull out these two connections. They go together because people are created in the image of God. And so when I'm harming someone else, when I'm sinning against someone else, I'm actually doing it against also who? God, right? So we have to keep that connection there intact. And the psalm is doing that. I think the other part of this for David may be because he, as a leader, of Israel, the king that had been anointed and put in power by God had abused that power that God had given them. And so there's another layer here for David where he's seeing this is not only against Bathsheba and Uriah, but against God's putting him in that place and he abused that place of power. So David is at this point of utter brokenness about his own sin, about his own problems. And you know, as bad as that is, that's actually probably the place he needed to be. One of the core practices here at our church, are one of the first ones, if you remember from the Ripple Effect series, we talk about the first thing is what? Live honestly. Be honest about what's going on in your life. Be honest about who God created you to be. Don't try and hide your stuff from other people. Be honest about it. Get it out there. Gather with some others. Confess to others so that they can help you, right, become the person that God created you to be. We need each other. So David starts out the psalm this way. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. I love that part. <laughs> what is he appealing to? He's appealing to this fact that, you know, you heard me talk to the kids about that no matter what, God has this unfailing love for us. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Again, poetry here. It's poetry in motion. The poetic license is being used here. But what David is saying is these are the signs of his confession. He's beginning a confession. And notice the words that he uses here. And actually, he repeats them again later in the psalm. These three phrases, blot out, wash, cleanse. That's beginning of his confession. You know, to, bl to blot out something in that day, we have to kind of go back in time and understand this. To blot out literally meant if you, if you wrote something in a scroll somewhere or into so to blot it out would be to, to erase it from that piece of paper, to blot it out or to mark over it so that you couldn't see it. So the first, that's the blotting out part. That's the first sign of confession. Then you've got this idea of washing in the, in the ancient idea of washing. And so what they would do to wash their clothes, they did not have Samsung, Maytag, Whirlpool. They had none of that. They had a good old stream with some rocks 
And you would take your clothes and you would wash it in the water and then you would beat your clothes against the rocks to get out the dirt. So when David is saying, wash me, he's not saying, put me in a whirlpool. He's saying, take me to the river and take out of me these impurities, right? You know, this, this, was, a, this was the washing that he would have known. And then this idea of cleansing was actually this idea where you would take metal ore and you would take the ore and you would heat it up so that the impurities would rise to the top of that metal, whatever metal you were trying to purify, and that was called the dross. And then you would clear off the dross, heat it up again, clear off some more dross, heat it up again. So it's this refining process, this cleansing process to cleanse the metal of its impurities. That's the imagery here. So you can see that, that this poetic license is really trying to say, take it all away, God. Every single particle of it, every little bit of it in me that wants to do these things, will you just take it away? Will you just wash it, cleanse it, blot it out? God, I don't care what you have to do. Please get this out of me. If you've ever had a disease, right, physical disease, You'll do anything to feel better. You'll do anything to get that disease out of your system. It's the same here. David's saying, whatever it takes, God, take it out of me. A lot of times, though, we tend not to go to that level of confession, do we? We tend to rationalize it. We tend to find ways to make it not look so bad like could we just deal with parts of it right or could I somehow could I not be totally at fault for this right has anybody ever felt well I'm not I'm not totally at fault you know take for example some excuses that uh, car insurance folks come up this is one an invisible car suddenly hit my car and vanished right it wasn't my fault it was an invisible car fault, you know. Uh, Wonder Woman must have been coming through. I don't know. How about this? No one was to blame for the accident. However, if the other driver was more attentive, then this accident could have been avoided, right? Right? Again, no, notice that, uh, oh, yes, this accident, you know, but really it's their fault, right? You know, it's really not my fault. And then here's my favorite. I left for work this morning at 7 a.m. as usual. When I collided straight into a bus, the bus was five minutes early, Right? <laughs> You know, it's the bus's fault for being early, right? Right? Not me for running into the bus, right? And that, are buses early in Seattle? I don't know. <laughs> so that could have caused an accident, right? We, we know. I've, been, I've had a few bus drivers pull out in front of me, almost causing an accident. Of course, it's the bus driver's fault, not my fault. But I've had that here. So notice that we, we don't always want to address the entirety of our brokenness, right? We, we kind of want to maybe address part of it, or we want to cover up parts and reveal other parts. But notice that what David is doing, he's addressing the entirety of his sin without excuse, without rationalization, without justification. He's saying, it's all there, God. He's taken all of it and says, I need it all gone. It's the totality of it. The other thing that we don't pick up here in the text, there's this mention of a secret place. Did you hear that part? that God has given him wisdom in a secret place. Now, in a city that had a walled city, 
there would be sources of water in the city called, they were kept in secret places. So there would be water source because if the city was ever under siege from an army, they would need access in the city to water because they couldn't go out of the city. And so there would be springs or wells that were hidden within a city that could be uh, used during times of siege. There were also springs outside the city that could be used by the opposing army to stop, to, to access water because those troops who were laying siege would need water. Because battles in, the, in that time would go on for months and months and months. Sieges would go on for long periods of time. And so everybody needed water, both armies needed water. So one of the things that a, a king would do or the, in a city, especially if the city was going to be overrun or taken over, or to prevent uh, the invading troops from having access to water, before the troops got there, they would go to all those secret places and plug up or destroy those, those water sources. Literally, they would just plug them up. Uh, the Philistines did this to Abraham in the Old Testament. He would go dig a well in their territory or near their territory, and they say, hey, we're going to take over this well, and they would like plug it up, throw dirt into it, cover it up again, and then Abraham would have to move on. Same thing here in the city. So this secret place is actually referring to that spring of well water that a king would stop up to prevent access to enemy troops. But here's the thing. What I think David is saying is, I need to open up my secret place, the wellspring of my life, my spirit to you, God. I've plugged it up. I've hidden it from you. I've not given you access to my secret place. And I need your wisdom there. I need you to come back in here because that's the reason I keep doing stupid stuff like this. You see, you and I all have that secret place. My question this morning to you is, is it plugged up to God? Is, is God trying to get in there and you're kind of going, wait, you know, no, I don't really need you. I've got enough excuses, enough rationalization, enough justification that I got it under control. I don't need your help, God. Or are you like David to the point where you're saying, come, even into that secret place, that wellspring of my life, my spirit, and do something. Do something. That's the, that's the heart of this psalm. Come in and do something on the inside of me, God. Take my heart and do something with it. Not only cleanse it, but then he goes on and he says this. He says, create in me. Create in me. He's using this word bara from the Hebrew, which means to create. It's the same word used at, in Genesis chapter 1 that God created the heavens and the earth, the bara. He's saying, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So this isn't just confession. There's something else. This is a request for restoration, right? This isn't just a, a request to be forgiven. This is a request to say, I not only need to be forgiven by your love, God, I actually need you to restore me. I actually need you to come into my life and do something with this mess that I've made of it. And notice the word, he says, pure heart. Again, that word purity comes up. You know, when 
he talks about this. Do you know one of the number one reasons why people need heart transplants? I don't know if it's the number one, but it's pretty close. If you've ever been a candidate for a heart transplant or know somebody who's been a candidate for a heart transplant, one of the reasons that they need a transplant is because their heart has hardened. The muscles get hard, and you can't pump the blood well enough and to get the blood to the muscles to help the body to live. And so the heart begins to harden so much that it can't function anymore appropriately, rightly. So when David's saying, create in me a pure heart, he's saying, take this hardness out of me you know, and I think this also ties in this idea of that we plug up that secret place, right? And we harden ourselves, we callous ourselves to God wanting to do something inside of us. And so we cover up, we hide, we do these things. And what David is saying is, I need you to come into this hard heart of mine that I've closed off to you, and I need you to recreate it. I need you to soften it. I need you to re- give life back to this heart of mine. So create in me a pure heart. And then a steadfast spirit. A steadfast spirit means a consistent spirit, a loyal spirit. Have you ever noticed about brokenness and sin in our lives that it's, it's not that we, that we fail every once in a while, but it's the consistency in which we fail. And part of our struggle is often that I'm not consistent. You know, I can't, how, how come I'm not being consistent with this or in loving other people or not doing these things that harm the people around me? How can I be more consistent? Because that's part of loyalty. So to be consistent and loyal is to be steadfast. So what David is saying, I want a consistency in my actions. I want a consistency in my life. I want to be loyal to you, God, and to the people around me because I've been disloyal to Uriah and Bathsheba. I've been disloyal to you. I have not been consistent we, if we remember the story that we told, where was David supposed to be when the troops went off to bat, battle the Ammonites? Where was David supposed to be? I know some of you went to Sunday school. Where was David supposed to be? With the troops, right? He had, I wonder if he had done that many other times. He had gone with the troops, but this time he was not consistent, right? That's the door that opens for him for sin to come in, right? It's the lack of consistency. And then he asked for this other part too, right? Which is, I get this, willing spirit, right? Oh man, if I had a willing spirit, that would really help. <laughs> because why? Because the, 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 the what, do, what do we always say? You know, we quote, you know, we say, well, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? He's actually saying, I want to be willing to do the right thing on a consistent basis. Would you put that inside of me, God? Would you recreate my heart in such a way that I would be consistent and loyal and willing to be that way? Like, I want to be that way? Let me ask a question. Do you believe that's possible? Do you believe that it's possible to have a willing spirit that is consistent and loyal? Because here's the thing, if we don't believe that that can happen for us, it's going to be real hard. But is it possible that the Holy Spirit could come into our secret places, into our inner lives, and give us a willing spirit? I think yes. But again, it's about us being willing, again, another willing, to open ourselves to God. 
and what God wants to do, right? So there's this kind of dance that we do with the Holy Spirit, but we have to open ourselves for the Holy Spirit to come in and give us the willing spirit that we can have, that God wants to give us to be consistent and loyal with the brokenness and sin in our lives that we can. And here's the thing, we can't do this on our own, right? You and I cannot do this on our own, under our own willpower. We actually need the help of the Holy Spirit to do that. Notice, though, that the request, pure heart, steadfast spirit, willing spirit, is for a heart that is consistent, loyal, and willing. And that actually leads to the signs of a changed person. And the psalmist continued, David continues to go on, here are the things that are going to be changed as a result of not only my confession, but my restoration. And then he says, here are the things that are going to change in my behavior. One is, I'm going to teach others, right? That I'm going to be restored to the point where I'm able to teach other people what I've learned from you, God. Here's the thing I love about teaching. Another core practice in our church is teach one another to follow Jesus. Here's the thing we can teach one another. The things that we've learned from God. Sometimes, I've also noticed this, I'm still in the process of learning. So I'm not ready to teach. <laughs> I'm not always ready to teach because I have not yet fully been restored or I have not yet learned the lesson. How can I teach somebody else a lesson or something I've learned in my relationship with God if I have not gone through the whole process or if I have not been restored fully to my relationship with God and my relationship to other people? It gets hard to do that. Uh, when I would teach preaching classes at, at seminary, one of the things we would talk about with students is, because they would come into these sermons and they would bare their souls to the class, which was wonderful. I love the authenticity of it. But every once in a while, I'd be like, oh, I don't know that you should share that publicly, right? Not because it's not authentic, but because you're still dealing with this. You're still in the process of trying to figure this out, Right? So we would often say, don't use the pulpit as a therapy session, right? Which is a danger for us preachers and teachers. But really what he's saying, restore me to the point where I not only have learned, but I've grown in my relationship with you, God, and I can share how you've worked in my life, and I can share that and teach other people about it. And some of you are doing that, and some of you are in that place. Some of you have had difficult life lessons and things that have happened to you in life that God is now redeeming and able to use to help someone else in that same situation. You know what that it's like, and that's a great thing. So that's a result of being confess and restoration. The next thing here is praise. Back to worship. We're back to worship again in the Psalms. Seems like every week we come back to worship. This idea that this rebirth and return and recreation and restoration will lead us to do what? Praise the God of unfailing love who restored me. To be able to say to God, you're the one that did this, not me on my own, not under my power, but God, you did this in my life. And we give credit, we give praise to God. And then the other thing that, that begins to happen is this offering of humility, this brokenness of spirit, this contrite heart that is talked about. That's our key verse this week. It says this, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise that ultimately the God, what God wants is our hearts restored 
changed in their relationship to God, relationship to other people. Jesus talked about this in the Gospels. He said, For it is from within you, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. There's something that God wants to do on the inside of us that will change how we relate to other people and how we relate to God. We see it in the Old Testament in this confession. We see it in the New Testament in Jesus' teaching. And there are other teachings that Jesus talks about this. So there's something that God knows, that there's this connection that needs to be dealt with, that we need confession, we need restoration, and we need to change. And the hope and the good news is, through the work of the Holy Spirit, it's possible. Because if we walk out of here thinking it's not possible... (laughs) Then we've come and we've worshiped and we've heard a good positive message, hopefully. Maybe it was negative for you. I don't know. But ultimately, we hope to change. Now, I have unfortunately had to confront people as a pastor about something going on in their life. And there are are kind of two ways I gauge this. So have you ever like, let me me start with the, the bad way. How many of you have ever saw somebody doing something wrong and you want to go point it out to them? Anybody? Yeah, amen. Come on. Come on. It's true, right? How many people have ever been in traffic and had somebody, you know, do something and what's the immediate response that you have to that person? Like, I'm going to get them. I'm going to, you know. Just the other day, I was out on my bike and I'm riding down to Seafair and this person, you know, there's a car coming the way I'm on going down along the road next to Lake Washington. It's really tight bushes and everything. So I'm like in the road. This guy tries to squeeze between my bike and the car coming in the other direction. And I got no room. I got no place to go, right? There's no bike lane there. And uh, my immediate response was, I'm going to chase this guy down and give him peace of my mind, right? I couldn't keep up. He was doing way, he was going way faster than I could keep up, right? So that didn't happen. But there was a part of me that wanted that to happen, right? So you know what I'm talking about. That's the way we typically think about confronting somebody who's doing something wrong. I'm going to go let them know about it. But we have to get over that. Nathan, notice that Nathan, the prophet Nathan, took nine months before he confronts David. Notice that his first response after he knows about what's happened is not to go to David. I don't know, why does he wait nine months before confronting David? I don't know. But I wonder if he was struggling with, oh, how do I go about this? What do I do? What do I say? And why am I doing this? That's the question we need to ask. Why am I doing this? Because I think God's ultimate goal for confronting sin is restoration. Not just to say, I'm right, you're wrong, you're bad, I'm good, right? That's part of it. So this idea of restoration. So here's the other thing I've learned as a pastor having to go to people and say, and I, and I have to wrestle with that within myself before I go, but here's the other part of it, is that sometimes it's my job to do that, and I hate, I don't like that. But I've had to confront staff persons, I've had to confront other pastors about sin in their life, uh, uh, things that they've done wrong, and I go in, and I always am looking for the path of restoration for that person. 
So what does the path of restoration look like for this person? And I offer that, I try and do my best to offer that path. Here's the response I typically get, unfortunately. I don't want to do any of that stuff, Pastor. I don't want to go to counseling. I don't want to confess or talk to anybody about it. I don't want to have to deal with it. I don't want to go to a small group. I don't want to do any of these things. Can you just forgive me and we go about our business? That's typically the response. Like, can we just make this go away? Can you do some PR work for me, Pastor, right? Like the politicians, right? Because I don't want to really confront it. I want you to forgive me, right? Because we're, we're in the forgiveness business. That's what I hear. Well, we're a church. We're supposed to forgive each other. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. We are supposed to. And I had one person say to me one time, well, why can't you just forgive me and we move on? And I said, there's more to it than that. There are consequences. David had to face the consequences of his sin. He didn't get out of the consequences of his sin. He didn't, you know, he still had to go through that. But here's the thing. I look at them and I say, look, here's the path of restoration. Here's some things you can do, steps you can take, not only confess, but you can work to restore your brokenness in your life towards God and toward other people because that's the ultimate goal here. Very few people, unfortunately, take that offer. You know, if you went to the doctor because you had a broken bone and you went into the doctor and the doctor looked at, did, what's the doctor going to do? X-ray, come back. Hey, guess what? You broke your arm, right? You broke your arm. Okay, great, doc. Thanks for telling me that information. I'm glad I know I have a broken arm. Could you just give me some really good drugs and I can get out of here, right? Can you just give me something to numb the pain so I can get back to life? Doctor's going to go, no, 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 no. I'll give you something for the pain. But what we need to do is we need to put you in a cast. And we need to put you in a cast for three months. Because if we don't take the time to rest it and heal it, you won't be full again. You won't be whole again. I think that's the process of restoration. Too often we want to just confess and be forgiven, give me something to numb the pain, rather than really address the pain, set the bone, let it rest, let it heal, bring it back to fullness of health. That needs to happen. For relationships, for us as individuals. One of the things I found beautiful about last year's conference here in the Free Methodist Church was that they, several pastors were brought forward at our conference and they had all fallen from grace. You know, they had had something go wrong in their ministry. They had been taken out of ministry. They had to leave ministry for some reason or another. But what the Free Methodist Church was doing years later was restoring them to ministry was giving them their ordination credentials back because they had taken the time to get counseling, to heal their marriages, to fix the brokenness inside of them. And I love that the church was willing to restore them to ministry because that's the goal of confession. It's not just to get forgiveness. It's to get restored. Let's pray together.